Chapter Eight of First on the Moon by Jeff Sutton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At a precise point in space spelled out by the Alpine computers, Craig applied the first braking rockets. He realized that the act had been an immediate tip-off to the occupants of the other rocket. No matter, he thought, sooner or later they had to discover it was the drone they had destroyed. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, their headlong flight was slowed. He nursed the rockets with care. There was no fuel to spare, no energy to waste, no room for error. Everything had been worked out long beforehand. He was merely the agent of execution. The sensation of weight gradually increased. He ordered Larkwell and Nagel into their seats in strapped-down position. He and Porcheska shortly followed, but he left his shoulder harnessing loose to give his arms the vital freedom he needed for the intricate maneuvers ahead. The moon rushed toward them at an appalling rate. Its surface was a harsh grillwork of black and white, a nightmare scape of pox and twisted mountains of rock rimming the flat lunar plains. It was, he thought, the geometry of a maniac. There was no softness, no blend of light and shadow, only terrible cleavages between black and white. Yet there was a beauty that gripped his imagination, the raw, stark beauty of a nature undefiled by life. No eye had ever seen the canopy of the heavens from the bleak surface below. No flower had ever wafted in a lunar breeze. Porchaka nudged his arm and indicated the scope. Bandit was almost abreast them. Craig nodded understandingly. No more warheads. Guess we're just loaded with luck, Porchaska agreed wryly. They watched, waited, mindless of time. Craig felt the tension building inside him. Occasionally, he glanced at the chronometer, itching for action. The wait seemed interminable. Minutes or hours, he lost track of time. All at once his hand and mind were busy with the braking rockets, dials, meters. First the moon had been a pallid giant in the sky. Next it filled the horizon. The effect was startling. The limb of the moon, seen as a shallow curved horizon, no longer was smooth. It appeared as a rugged, saw-toothed arc, somehow reminding him of the Devil's Golf Course in California's Death Valley. It was weird and wonderful and slightly terrifying. Porchaska manned the automatic camera to record the orbital and landing phases. He had spotted the crater of Ptolemaeus first, near the center line of the disk. Craig made a minute correction with the steering rockets. The enemy rocket followed suit. Porchaska gave a short, harsh laugh without humor. Looks like we're piloting them in. Jeepers, you think they could do their own navigation. Shows the confidence they have in us, Craig retorted. They flashed high above Ptolemaeus, a crater ninety miles in diameter, rimmed by walls three thousand feet high. The crater fled below them. South lay Alphonse, and farther south Arzachel, with walls ten thousand feet high, rimming its vast, depressed interior. Porcheska observed quietly, Nice rugged spot. It's going to take some doing. Amen. I'm beginning to get that. What the hell am I doing here feeling? 
I've had it right along, Craig confided. They caught only a fleeting look at Arzachel before it rushed into the background. Craig touched the braking rockets from time to time, gently, precisely, keeping his eyes moving between the radar altimeter and speed indicator while the chief fed him the course data. The backside of the moon was spinning into view, the side of the moon never before seen by human eyes. Porcheska whistled softly. A huge mountain range, interlaced with valleys and chasms, pushed some thirty thousand feet into the lunar skies. Long streaks of okra and brown marked its size, the first color they had seen on the moon. Flat highland plains crested between the peaks were dotted with strange monolithic structures, almost geometrical in their distribution. Porcheska was shooting the scene with an automatic camera. Craig twisted around several times to nod reassuringly to Nagel and Larkwell, but each time they were occupied with the side ports, oblivious of his gesture. To his surprise, Nagel's face was rapt, almost dreamy, completely absorbed by the stark lands below. Larkwell, too, was quiet with wonder. The jagged mountains fell away to a great sea, larger even than Mare in Briam, and like Mare in Briam, devoid of life. A huge crater rose from its center, towering over twenty thousand feet. Beyond lay more mountains. The land between was a wild tangle of rock, place of unutterable desolation. Craig was fascinated and depressed at the same time. The Aztec was closing around the moon in a tight spiral. The alien landscape drew visibly nearer. He switched his attention between the braking rockets and instruments, trying to manage a quick glance at the scope. Prochaska caught his look. Bandits up on us, he confirmed. Craig uttered a vile epithet, and Prochaska grinned. He liked to hear him growl, taking it as a good sign. Craig glanced worriedly at the radar altimeter and hit the braking rockets harder. The quick deceleration gave the impression of added weight, pushing them hard against their chest harnesses. He found it difficult to make the precise hand movements required. The Aztec was dropping with frightening rapidity. They crossed more mountains, seas, craters, great chasms. Time had become meaningless, had ceased to exist. The sheer bleakness of the face of the moon gripped his imagination. He saw it as a supreme challenge, the magnitude of which took his breath. He was Cortez, scanning the land of the Aztecs. More, for this stark lonely terrain had never felt the stir of life. No benevolent maker had created this chaos. It was an inferno without fire, a hell of a kind never known on earth. It was the handiwork of a nature on a rampage, a maddened nature whose molding clay had been molten lava. He stirred the controls, moved them further, holding hard. The braking rockets shook the ship, coming through the bulkheads as a faint roar. The ground came up fast. Still the landscape fled by, fled past for seeming days. Porcheska announced wonderingly, We've cleared the backside. You're on the landing run, Skipper. Craig nodded grimly. 
thinking it was going to be rough. Each second, each split second, had to be considered. There was no margin for error, no second chance. He checked and rechecked his instruments, juggling speed against altitude. Ninety-mile-wide Ptolemaeus was coming around again, fast. He caught a glimpse through the floor port. It was a huge saucer, level at the bottom, rimmed by low cliffs, which looked as though they had been carved from obsidian. The floor was split by irregular chasms, punctuated by sharp high pinnacles. It receded, and Alphonse rushed to meet them. The Aztec was dropping fast. Too fast? Craig looked worriedly at the radar altimeter and hit the braking rockets harder. Alphonse passed more slowly. They fled south, a slim needle in the lunar skies. Arzachal, he breathed the name almost reverently. Prochaska glanced out the side port before hurriedly consulting the instruments. Thirty thousand feet. He glanced worriedly at Craig. The ground passed below them at a fantastic speed. They seemed to be dropping faster. The stark face of the planet hurtled to meet them. Fifteen thousand feet, Prochaska half-whispered. Craig nodded. Twelve thousand, ten, eight. The chief continued to chant the altitude readings in a strained voice. Up till then, the face of the moon had seemed to rush toward the Aztec. All at once it changed. Now it was the Aztec that rushed across the hostile land, rushing and dropping. Three thousand, two thousand. They flashed high above a great cliff, which fell away for some ten thousand feet. At its base began the plain of Arzachal. Out of the corner of his eye, Craig saw that Bandit was leading them, but higher, much higher. Now it was needling into the purple-black, straight up. He gave a quick automatic instrument check. The braking rockets were blasting hard. He switched one hand to the steering rockets. Zero minute was coming up. Bandit was ahead, but higher. It could, he thought, be a photo finish. Suddenly he remembered his faceplate and snapped it shut, opening the oxygen valve. The suit grew rigid on his body and hampered his arms. He cursed softly and looked sideways at Prochaska. He was having the same difficulty. Craig managed a quick over-the-shoulder glance at Larkwell and Nagel. Everything seemed okay. He took a deep breath and applied full deceleration with the braking jets and simultaneously began manipulating the steering rockets. The ship vibrated from stem to stern. The forward port moved upward. The face of the moon swished past and disappeared. Bandit was lost to sight. The ship trembled, shuddered, and gave a violent wrench. Craig was thrown forward. The Aztec began letting down, tail first. It was a sickening moment. The braking rockets astern, heavy with smoke, thundered through the hull. The smoke blanketed out the ports. The cabin vibrated. He straightened the nose with the steering rockets, letting the ship fall in a vertical attitude, tail first. He snapped a glance at the radar altimeter and punched the button. A servo mechanism somewhere in the ship started a small motor. A tubular, spidery metal framework was projected out from the tail, extending some twenty feet 
before it locked into position. It was a failing device, intended to absorb the energy generated by the landing impact. Porcheska looked worriedly out the side port. Craig followed his eyes. Small details on the plain of Arsicol loomed large. Pits, cracks, low ridges of rock. Suddenly the plain was an appalling reality. Rocky fingers reached to grip them. He twisted his head until he caught sight of Bandit. It was moving down, tail first, but it was still high in the sky. Too high, he thought. He took a fast look at the radar altimeter and punched the full battery of braking rockets again. The force on his body seemed unbearable. Blood was forced into his head, blurring his vision. His ears buzzed, and his spine seemed to be supporting some gigantic weight. The pressure eased, and the ground began moving up more slowly. The rockets were blasting steadily. For a split second, the ship seemed to hang in mid-air, followed by a violent shock. The cabin teetered, then smashed onto the plane, swaying as the framework projecting from the tail crumbled. The shock drove them hard into their seats. They sat for a moment before full realization dawned. They were down, alive. Craig and Porchaska simultaneously began shucking their safety belts. Craig was first. He sprang to the side port, just in time to see the last seconds of Bandit's landing. It came down fast, a perpendicular needle stabbing toward the lunar surface. Flame spewed from its braking rockets, white smoke enveloped its nose. Fast, too fast, he thought. Suddenly, the flame licked out. Fuel error. The thought flashed through his mind. The fuel bandit had wasted in space maneuvering to destroy the drone had left it short. The rocket seemed to hang in the sky for a scant second before it plummeted straight down, smashing into the stark lunar landscape. The chief had reached his side just in time to witness the crash. That's all for them, he said. Can't say I'm sorry. Serves him damn well right, growled Craig. He became conscious of Nagel and Larkwell crowding to get a look and obligingly moved to one side without taking his eyes from the scene. He tried to judge Bandit's distance. Little over two miles, he estimated aloud. You can't tell in this vacuum, Prochaska advised. Your eyes play you tricks. Wait, I'll try the scope. A moment later, he turned admiringly from the instrument. Close to three miles. Pretty good for a green hand. Craig laughed, a quiet laugh of self-satisfaction, and said, I could use a little elbow room. Any volunteers? Liberty call, Prochaska sang out. All ashore who's going ashore. The gals are waiting. I'm a little tired of the sardine can myself, Larkwell put in. Let's get on our Sunday duds and blow. I'd like to do the town. There was a murmur of assent. Nagel, who was monitoring the oxygen pressure gauge, spoke affirmatively. No leaks. Good, Craig said with relief. He took a moment off to feel exultant, but the mood quickly vanished. There was work ahead, sheer drudgery. Check suit pressure, he ordered. They waited a moment longer while they tested pressure. The interphones and adjusted to the lack of body weight 
before Craig moved toward the hatch. Prochaska prompted them to actuate their temperature controls. It's going to be hot out there. Craig nodded, checked his temperature dial, and started to open the hatch. The lock lever resisted his efforts for a moment. He tested the dogs, securing the door. Several of them appeared jammed. Panic touched his mind. He braced his body, moving against one of the lock levers with all his strength. It gave, then another. He loosened the last lock, braced against the blast of escaping air. The hatch exploded open. He stood for a moment, looking at the ground, some twenty feet below. The metal framework, now crumpled below the tail, had done its work. It had struck, failing, and in doing so, had absorbed a large amount of the impact energy which otherwise would have been absorbed by the body of the rocket, with possible damage to the space cabin. The Aztec's tail fins were buried in what appeared to be a powdery ash. The rocket canted slightly, but he thought not dangerously so. Larkwell broke out the rope ladder provided for descent and was looking busy. Now it was his turn to shine. He hooked the ladder over two pegs and let the other end fall to the ground. He tested it, then straightened up and turned to Craig. You may depart, sire. Craig grinned and started down the ladder. It was clumsy work. The bulk and rigidity of his suit made his movements uncertain, difficult. He descended slowly, testing each step. He hesitated at the last rung, thinking, This is it. He let his foot dangle above the surface for a moment, before plunging it down into the soft ash mantle, then walked a few feet, ankle-deep, in a fine gray powder. First human foot to touch the moon, he thought, the first human foot ever to step beyond the world. Yeah, the human race was on the way, led by Adam Philip Craig. He felt good. It occurred to him, then, that he was not the real victor. The honor belonged to a man 240,000 miles away. Gotch had won the moon. It had been the opaque-eyed colonel who had directed the conquest. He, Craig, was merely a foot soldier, just one of the troops. All at once he felt humble. Porcheska came down next, followed by Nagel. Larkwell was last. They stood in a half-circle, looking at each other, awed by the thing they had done. No one spoke. They shifted their eyes outward, hungrily, over the plain, marveling at the world they had inherited. It was a bleak, hostile world, encompassed in a bowl whose vast depressed interior, alternately, was burned and frozen by turn. To their north the rim of Arzachal towered ten thousand feet, falling away as it curved over the horizon to the east and west. The plain to the south was a flat expanse of gray, punctuated by occasionally rocky knolls and weird, needle-sharp pinnacles, some of which towered to awesome heights. Southeast, a long, narrow spur of rock rose and crawled over the floor of the crater for several miles before it dipped again into its ashy bed. Craig calculated that a beeline to Bandit would just about skirt the southeast end of the spur. Another rock formation dominated the middle expanse of the plain to the south. 
It rose, curving over the crater floor like the spinal column of some gigantic lizard, a great crescent with its horns pointed toward their present position. Porchaska promptly dubbed it Backbone Ridge, a name that stuck. Craig suddenly remembered what he had to do and coughed meaningfully into his lip mic. The group fell silent. He faced the distant north cliffs and began to speak. I, Adam Craig, by the authority vested in me by the government of the United States of America, do hereby claim this land and all the lands of the moon as legal territory of the United States of America, to be a dominion of the United States of America, subject to its government and laws. When he finished, he was quiet for a minute. For the record, this is Pickering Field. I think he'd like that, he added. There was a lump in his throat. Porcheska said quietly, Gotch will like it too. Hadn't we better record that and transmit it to Alpine? It's already recorded, Craig grinned. All but the Pickering Field part. Gotch wrote it out himself. Confident bastard, Larkwell smiled. He had a lot more faith than I did. Especially the way you brought that stovepipe down, Nagel interjected. There was a moment of startled silence. Prochaska said coldly, I hope you do your job as well. Nagel looked provocatively at him, but didn't reply. Larkwell had been studying the terrain. Wish Abel had made it, he said wistfully. I'd like to get started on that airlock. It's going to be a honey to build. Amen. Craig swept his eyes over the ashy surface. The scientists figured that falling meteorites may be our biggest hazards. Not if we follow the plan of building our airlock in a rill, Arkwell interjected. Then the only danger would be from stuff coming straight down. Agreed, but the fact remains that we lost Abel. We'll have to chance living in the Aztec until Drone Baker arrives. If it makes it. It'll make it, Craig answered with certainty. Their safe landing had boosted his confidence. They'll land Baker and Charlie in that order, he thought. They'd locate a shallow rill. Then they'd build an airlock to protect them against chance meteorites. That's the way they'd do it. One, two, three. We got it whipped, Prochaska observed, but his voice didn't hold the certainty of his words. Craig said, I was wondering if we couldn't assess the danger. It might not be so great. How? Prochaska asked curiously. No wind, no air, no external forces to disturb the ash mantle, except for meteorites. Any strike would leave a trace. We might smooth off a given area and check for hits after a couple of days. That would give some idea of the danger. He faced Prochaska. What do you think? But the ash itself is meteorite dust, he protested. We could at least chart the big hits, those large enough to damage the rocket. We'll know if any hit, Larkwell prophesied grimly. Maybe not, Nagel cut in, supposing it's pinhole size. The air could seep out, and we wouldn't know it until too late. Craig said decisively, that means we'll have to maintain a watch over the pressure gauge. That won't help if it's a big chunk, Prochaska scraped his toe, through the ash. The possibility's sort of disconcerting. 
Too damn many occupational hazards for me, Larkwell ventured. I must have had rocks in my head when I volunteered for this one. All brawn and no brain. Craig gave a wry smile. That's the kind of fodder that's needed for deep space. Prochaska said, We ought to let Gotch know he's just acquired a few more acres. Right. Craig hesitated a moment. Then we'll check out on Bandit. Why? Larkwell asked. There might be some survivors. Let them rot, Nagel growled. That's for me to decide, Craig said coldly. He stared hard at the oxygen man. We're still human. Nagel snapped. They're damn murderers. That's no reason we should be. Craig turned back toward the ladder. When he reached it, he paused and looked skyward. The sun was a precise circle of intolerable white light set amid the ebony of space. The stars seemed very close. The space cabin was a vacuum. At Nagel's suggestion, they kept pressure to a minimum to preserve oxygen. When they were out of their suits, Prochaska got on the radio. He had difficulty raising Alpine Base, working for several minutes before he got an answering signal. When the connection was made, Craig moved into Prochaska's place and switched to his ear insert microphone. He listened to the faint, slightly metallic voice for a moment before he identified it as Gotch's. He thought, the old man must be living in the radio shack. He adjusted his headset and sent a lengthy report. If Gotch were jubilant over the fruition of his dream, he carefully concealed it. He congratulated Craig and the crew, speaking in precise formal terms, and almost immediately launched into a barrage of questions regarding their next step. The colonel's reaction nettled him. Lord, he should be jubilant, jumping with joy, waltzing with the telephone gal. Instead, he was speaking with a business-as-usual manner. Gotch left it up to Craig on whether or not to attempt a rescue expedition. But not if it endangers the expedition in any way, he added. He informed him that Drone Baker had been launched without mishap. Just be ready for her, he cautioned. And again, congratulations, Commander. There was a pause. I think Pickering Field is a fitting name. The voice in the earphones died away, and Craig found himself listening to the static of space. He pulled the sets off and turned to Nagel. How much oxygen would a man need for a round trip to Bandit, assuming a total distance of seven miles? It's not that far, Prochaska reminded. There might be detours. Nagel calculated rapidly. An extra cylinder would do it. Okay, Larkwell and I will go. You and Prochaska stand by. Craig caught the surprised look on the chief's face. There might be communication problems, he explained. Privately, he had decided that no man would be left alone until the mystery of the time bomb was cleared up. Prochaska nodded. The arrangement made sense. Nagel appeared pleased that he didn't have to make the long trek. Larkwell, on the other hand, seemed glad to have been chosen. End of Chapter 8